give you a little bit of context as you make your way there. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, uh, to a church that he planted there on his second missionary tour. Persecution, of course, had forced him to leave before he had hand, had the chance to properly disciple them and appoint leaders there, as was his pattern. And out of concern for their progress, we see later on in the book that he tried and failed to return to them on his own um, uh, personally. But he sent Timothy then to go and to see how things were going, to get some news from this little church family in its infancy, hoping that the news was good. But Timothy comes back and the news is not good. Uh, the news is great. It's absolutely fantastic. This little local church um, is vibrant. And Paul starts off this letter thanking God for the vital signs of a living faith in this church. Now, in chapter one, I think we see five of them, five vital signs. We've looked at four so far. We've seen a faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that hangs on. And last week, we saw that this receiving the gospel with real effect and with rejoicing despite persecution uh, is yet another vital sign. And tonight, we consider uh, one more. One more vital sign that, that makes Paul say what he says in verse 4, I know you're loved by God and chosen in him because, number five, they transmit the gospel. Let's read 1 Thessalonians, and we'll read from verse 4 actually through to the end of verse 10. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, who raised, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. This is uh, God's word. Well, last week I tried to lodge an image in your mind. And it was the image of a satellite. And that's because the twofold function typical to satellites is, according to God's word, typical to Christians. Satellites receive and transmit data. Uh, both functions are essential to a satellite being a satellite. If all it did was receive, it would just be a hard drive. It wouldn't be a satellite. And it's the same with Christians. Uh, receiving and transmitting the gospel are key signs that someone is in the faith. I mean, if someone says they're a Christian, but don't transmit the gospel, it leaves a massive question mark over their claim. On the other hand, if a person receives the gospel and wants to, uh, tries to, and even though they muck it up a number of times, still know the deep desire to transmit the gospel, then that's good cause 
based on what we see in chapter 1, for that person to have confidence in the faith that they profess. And it provides good cause for a local church family to gather around that person and offer their own kind of affirmation saying, we believe you truly are in the faith because we see this in you. And the latter, that is exactly what we see Paul doing in verses 8 to 10 of this chapter. And that will be our focus tonight. He says, we thank God for you. We know you're loved by God and chosen by him because you are transmitting the gospel. And that's what true believers do. And that's our first point tonight, transmitting the gospel. We see it in verse 8. Now, the Thessalonians left Paul in no doubt they had received this gospel, for nothing transforms a gospel, a life, the way the gospel had transformed their lives. Nothing explains joy in suffering except the eternal perspective that comes from this personal response to the gospel that they had demonstrated. But now in their response to the gospel, we see that it was, even though the response to the gospel was something that was deeply personal, it was anything but private. Verse 8 suggests they're making a racket about Jesus. Read it with me. The Lord's message rang out from you. Now, how much is contained just in those few words? Notice two things with me. First of all, notice what they are transmitting. It's the Lord's message. It's not our message. It's not a man-made thing. It has its origin with the Lord God. Now, now Lord here uh, refers to Jesus. So it's Christ's message. Christ is the one who has come and has communicated something. He's the author of this message. In fact, he's the content of this message. It's all about him. He's the one who's come at the start of Mark's gospel declaring this message, telling that everyone that they need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's the one who explains that his death and his resurrection are going to be the crucial points of this good news, the key things that need to be told for people to believe and be saved. And then after he's raised from the dead, and as he's instructing his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he passes it on to them. And we're given the indication in Acts chapter 1 that what Jesus been, has been doing all along is just the beginning. The spreading of the gospel through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is coming. And it's going to happen through them, not just them. He says, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. They don't live to the end of the age. It is the church that does. So the church becomes the carrier of this message, the Lord's message, and is entrusted by Jesus with the task of passing it on. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You're coming to find out what church is all about. Or actually, you're just here being polite because your friend brought you. Welcome. It's great to see you. I mentioned the gospel in a nutshell at the start, but this is, that is the Lord's message. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. This is our only hope before a mighty God. This is the way to be saved from our sins. And it's this, the message of Jesus. The Lord's message is that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked on hopelessly sinful men and women like us. And he has sent his son in love. His son is Jesus Christ, who is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And he came to bear God's wrath against sin on the cross. 
and to show his power, his divine power, and his victory over sin by his resurrection from the dead three days later. So that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Sins forgiven. Freely now part of his family. Not an enemy of God, but a friend of God. That is the good news in a nutshell. Why don't you ask the person who brought you to explain it to you a little bit more. To read through one of the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tease out some of those brief statements that I just made. Or chat to me afterwards. I'd be delighted to do that. I'll be at the door uh, straight after the service finishes for about 10 minutes or so. Come and have a chat and let me talk to you about this. And there are some books in the bookstall that might be very helpful to you. This is a message of life. And you'll never be truly alive until you truly find life in Jesus Christ. Investigate it. Look into it. It's so important. For those of us who are Christians, when we hear a message like that, when we remember the great lengths and the great cost that God has gone to to show us his great love, when we see the kind of things that we've been rescued from and the kind of life that we've been brought into, you recognize just how incredible this message is and how really it is just not a message that you want to keep to yourself, is it? It's not a message to keep to yourself. It's something that ought to be spread. It should be viral. Like good satellites, we, like the Thessalonians, ought to be not only receiving, but transmitting the gospel. So that's what they're transmitting. Now notice how they're transmitting it. Verse 8 says, the Lord's message rang out from you. Now, in the original language, the, the word translated as rang out for us in ancient Greek, other ancient Greek texts is used to describe the pealing of bells or the rolling of thunder. And we know what this is like, thunder when it rolls. Um, it doesn't roll with a whimper, but with a real wallop. You know, you, you, you not only hear it, you feel it. Thunder doesn't sound out unnoticed, but it's kind of, it sounds out in a way that makes you stop and just double check that, I'm yeah, I'm still alive. Something catastrophic has not quite happened yet. Thunder has that sense. I used to think that went away after you grew up, but actually it doesn't really, does it? Um, at least for me. Thunder, in other words, thunder's noise gets noticed. And Paul says of the Thessalonians that the gospel is rolling out from you, sounding out from them like thunder rolling across the skies. I, that's an incredible way to describe it. What would we compare our evangelism to as a church family? What might be written of us? Could we say with the Apostle Paul that it sounds out like thunder? Well, we've just come off the back of a wonderful week of events. There are many ways that we can. But yet, how often does our experience feel so different that we might say the Lord's message rings out at a very high frequency that only dogs can hear? Or the Lord's message whispered out from us? Or the Lord's message sounded out generally at about the level of 12 decibels? It varies, doesn't it? 
But for these guys, the Lord's message is ringing out from them and having great effect across their region, and not only in Macedonia. And Achaia, it says in verse 8, now those are regions that are basically the northern and southern halves of Greece. He's saying that this, this is going beyond the border of your own city. As significant as Thessalonica was, it's actually going north into the northern aspects of Greece, south into the southern parts of Greece, and spreading. That's like me saying, Charlotte Chapel, the Lord's message is ringing out from you, in, not only in the highlands, but in the borders. It, it's an amazing description. And Paul was concerned for these new believers, but once again, we find these baby Christians showing us, as we often see nowadays, some of the best evangelists. I mean, Paul even goes on to say of these Thessalonians, your faith has become known everywhere. Now, I think he's very deliberate about this. He's very deliberate about saying the Lord's message rings out and your faith. In other words, the way what you believe, your doctrine, and how it's transforming you has become known everywhere. So remember how last week I said the gospel had come to them from the apostle Paul by lip and by life, by what he said and by how he lived? Well, I think we're seeing the very same. The news that's transforming them is spreading from them, being transmitted from them. The impact that it's having on them, even news of that is spreading. Now, some might say, how can it be that their faith has become known everywhere? Really, everywhere. Well, I mean, Paul could be employing about a hyperbole. He's very excited about this church family. But the spreading of the gospel everywhere could be related to the Thessalonians' location. Thessalonica was smack dab in the middle of the Ignatian Highway, which had basically was the main route between Rome and Byzantium and indeed on to the Orient after that. And it was a main communications hub. Before there was any kind of social media, they basically, people gathered there and, and gossiped on the streets and in the marketplaces. News was spreading about what was going on. And it turns out that one of the hot topics was the conversion of these Thessalonians. People have actually given up their idols to follow this guy called Jesus, they're saying. You know, they've turned away. They're going to be angering the gods of Mount Olympus. Who knows what is going to happen to them? And news is spreading. So what an opportunity they had by virtue of their location. And again, Charlotte Chapel, I want to say it's no different from us. We see uh, not only in our church family week in, week out, but... In the city, such a multicultural, cosmopolitan city, people come in here, certainly during festival time, but throughout the year, to stop over for a time. What an opportunity we have to reach the nations by reaching the people immediately around us. It's a wonderful opportunity. In all of this, Paul is saying that what you transmit and the way you're transmitting it and the way that other people are reporting how this gospel has taken hold of you, transformed you, and is just being transmitted from you gives me great hope and assurance that you are loved by God, chosen in him. And it's not hard to understand really why. Paul would highlight evangelism as a vital sign of a living faith in Christ. When you think about it. In Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples. 
we have a mandate. In Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us that those who had been scattered because of persecution preached the word wherever they went. They were all up to it. It wasn't just the apostles. Everyone was sharing this gospel. In Romans 10, Paul says that faith comes by hearing the word of God and demands that we see the problem of not proclaiming it. And surely the great commandment has something to say to us on this subject. For if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, can there be any more important way to love someone than to share the gospel with them? Even those four little reminders of different aspects of God's instruction and the example of the early church show us that this is, this is an essential manifestation of faith. Now, I want us to remember here that the primary subject is assurance. That even if we do not see the exceptional zeal of the Thessalonians replicated in our own evangelism, I want to ask us sincerely, do we know in our hearts a deep desire to pass on the Lord's message? To not be a terminus point for the gospel, but just a station where the gospel stops off and makes its home before moving on to someone else and somewhere else. I mean, if we do know in our heart this deep desire to pass it on, that is something that ought to give us confidence that we are loved by God and chosen in him. But if not, if, you, if we don't know any of this desire to share the gospel with others, if we see no need then we may have cause to grab one of our friends and ask them about this. To ask them to help you see whether or not your claim to follow Christ is genuine. I know someone who is in this category. I know her very well. She claims to believe in God. It's not my wife, by the way, just in case someone's thinking. <laughs> she claims to believe in God, uh, in Jesus, in heaven. She believes that she's going there. But she has never, I mean, she claims to have believed all this for over 40 years. But amongst other concerning signs, she has never told anyone the gospel ever never pleaded with anyone to believe it for themselves never asked someone to consider whether their lives might be at odds with the judgment that is to come never excitedly pointed someone to do you know the difference that jesus death and resurrection makes for people like us never now what do you think Advise me. Should I be encouraging her in her faith? Should I not evangelize her? And should I not tell her the gospel now? Should I just talk in the way that brothers and sisters in Christ talk? Or should I with deep humility and a real sense of urgency, say, 
that I think we need to think about the gospel a little bit more? Should I say, I think you may, you may be close to the kingdom of heaven, but currently you're not in it? What would you say? I think for her, faith is just superstition, really. Jesus is something like an amulet. She's not really been taught anything different, to be fair, but she needs to know. I think, based on all that I've explained in that scenario, that person has no real reason to be confident that God will receive her on that day when she sees him face to face. And I need to be bold enough to tell her, and soon. I need to be more like the Thessalonians. Do you? I do want us to think about how we increase our evangelistic zeal, of course. Personally, but let's not forget, as a church family too, I think we need to study more about what the Bible says about where the power to convert a soul lies. Our fears can cripple us, prevent us from sharing. We can study what the Bible says about the plight of the lost who do not hear. Yes, read more about judgment. Read more about hell. Let it hit us right between the eyes and let it challenge our complacency. There are more important things in our lives than some of the things that we're spending our lives on. Maybe we need to reset what is our number one focus. Another way, of course, to, to be evangelistic and be zealous in it as the Thessalonians were would be to, to do it. To be bold and tell someone about Jesus one day. I mean, even if you don't share the gospel with them at first, at least having some kind of spiritual conversation, talk about how being a Christian impacts on what we think about, I don't know, relationships or what music you're going to listen to or how you discipline your children or what your work ethic is all about. Anything. And pray that the Lord's message will ring out from us in Edinburgh in the highlands and in the borders and pray that people will not only hear the gospel but hear of its transforming effect on us as a church family and so become believers themselves. That's what was happening through the Thessalonians. So not only was there news of the gospel spreading throughout the nation, news of the way it had transformed them, went with it and that's another reason really why Paul could say you're you're, you're truly converted. The gospel has transformed you. This is the second point, transformed by the gospel. We see this in verses 9 and 10. What a phenomenal description of conversion that you have in front of you. I mean, people are talking about the change that had taken place in these Thessalonian believers. Verse 9, Paul's saying, we don't need to say anything about it. In other words, your faith. For they themselves, that is the people in Macedonia and Achaia, the people Paul's coming into contact with, 
They report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I love this. Now, many would say, Paul's telling us what conversion looks like. Well, yes, that's true, but he's actually, he's not actually instructing, he's relaying. He's telling us what other people are saying about the Thessalonians. And this is what the gospel does to people steeped in idolatry. And everyone is an idolater. Everybody worships something of some kind. You know, in some places, the idols that people worship and give their lives to are of the superstitious type. Um, in other places, maybe like in Edinburgh, they're of a far more sophisticated type, like money, sex, and power. But whether idols are superstitious or sophisticated, a pagan god that you bow down to, or cash, Idols have such a stronghold on people's minds, hearts, and lives, and that is why every conversion really is a miracle. And that's why the transforming power of the gospel in each and every one of our lives is actually wonderful. It really can change anyone. I mean, even when you look at the Thessalonians, they have this new allegiance. They turned to God from their idols. It changed what they loved changed how they worshipped. They had a new Lord, therefore they had this new allegiance. The old idols were seen as dead compared to the living God, false compared to the one true God. Well, these idols promised much but delivered nothing. God had already fulfilled many of his promises to bring about transformation in those who believe in them. He promised much more than their idols and never failed on one of his promises, never will. And of course, conversion is not something that's just to be seen in terms of negative terms and turning away from the old life, but as something positive, taking on the new life. And that's where Paul talks about this, this new purpose that they have. Uh, they are serving gods, living lives in God's service. Their entirety of their existence had taken on a brand new meaning by virtue of what they believed about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that is true of all who put their trust in Christ. We read often in the New Testament uh, phrases like, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Christ died for sins that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Changes everything. We go from living for ourselves and our own satisfaction to living for him and all that he stands for. Is that true of us? Well, there's a new allegiance when we follow Jesus as Lord, a new purpose, when we serve him, and a new hope. See what the Thessalonians are doing? They are waiting for Jesus. Who is he? He's the son, the divine son. Where is he? He's in heaven, not in a grave. What is he gonna do? He's gonna come again. Why is he in heaven? 
He's been raised from the dead. What will he do when he comes? He's going to rescue us from the coming wrath. And that wrath is still over everyone who does not repent of their sins and believe the gospel as the Thessalonians have done. What a change has been brought about in the Thessalonians. What transformation takes place because of God's love and God's grace, his spirit's work in us through the gospel. He changes us. We have a love that labors, a faith that functions, a hope that hangs on. We receive this gospel with reformation, real effect in our lives and rejoicing despite the fact that we suffer for it. And we not only receive, we transmit. We spread this news. And those five things, dear brothers and sisters, are vital signs that help us see that we are loved by God and chosen by him. And may we enjoy the assurance that these words give us and live more meaningfully for him in these days, not just in evangelism, but in every area of our Christian walk. Let's pray. Take a few seconds just now to respond in your own heart with prayers, prayers asking God to change things in your life, maybe confessing sin. Then I'll pray and then we'll sing.